Today's conversation is with actress and activist Anita Hollander, where we talk about her new show, Still Standing. We talk about, well, her history in the theater and her advocacy for disabled actors and actresses in the theater and on television. Hey, and here's our conversation with Anita Hollander. So, so let's see. So you have a recording. What, what do you have on the room? All the songs from Spectacular Falls. Oh, oh, that's your new show. Yes. And I have also an album of Still Standing, my previous show. But the new one is this one. And I did a podcast recently where I gave her permission, even though nobody's heard these songs yet, I gave her permission to put the opening number on there. And it sounded so fabulous. (laughs) It's really, it's very musical theater. Is everything on Spotify? No. Uh... The Still Standing songs are on Spotify, the first show. Okay. So they're all there. Um, but not yet with Spectacular Force because I barely just, I just received the CDs because I made the CD so I could sell it at the show in September. But oh, I good. haven't, I haven't gone further with CD Baby. And whereas Still Standing's out there on everything, Amazon, iTunes, okay. CD Baby, Spotify, and all those and things that I don't even know. But I haven't done that with the new album yet because I first wanted to see how it sounds when I get it. Because I just, I know it sounds great on the <laughs> computer. I'm so proud of it. And it sounds great on the phone. Well, if it sounds, well, here's the thing. If it sounds great on your headphones. Exactly. Kind of sound. I'm very proud of it, so I can't wait. And next thing, and I'll you wrote all those songs, and you wrote everything, all the songs. yeah, arranged them, and it's so exciting, really. I never thought I'd get past doing one, and I was so proud of the one that's still standing on. It was like, if I never do another thing in my life, I'm so happy. I yeah. will have contributed this, and it's done well. And now you've gotten, and now you have a second one complete. Now I have a second one, Re- ready to ready to bring to the world. Falls. Yeah, spectacular. Yeah. What's the uh, well, what's Spectacular Falls about? Spectacular Falls is a solo musical, original solo musical, about falling, about all the ways we use the word fall. So like if we fall short of something or fall over, fall fall out of favor, fall from grace. Fall um, in love. Fall in love, fall apart. Fall on your face. Um, I fall to pieces. Uh, Fallen empires, fallen heroes. uh, wearing a fall, you know, right, hair. Right. Uh, the season of fall, leaves right. falling. Um, There's so, and so the songs capture all these, do- oh, falling through the cracks. I do a song about immigration where the children are falling through the cracks. And, oh, wow. And sung by children. The song was written by my children's choir and I, so I have them singing an IASL, I, American Sign Language. Right. I interpret the song. So at that point, I stop singing and I just sign the song because the kids' voices are the best. They, they wrote it about their ancestors because we were sitting there, what can we do about this immigration problem? What, what can we do about these kids? because we were all just said, like what can we do so and the kids said we, um, well we should write a song where we welcome them and it was an amazing thing and I said well Jews I'm Jewish and this is a Jewish choir right. and it was like we come from everywhere we come from yes. all over the world so go home find out where your ancestors are from and I'll find out how to say welcome in that language because it was their ideas to say welcome in their language they came back when there were 20 different 
things. So we, we, in the middle of the song, we say welcome in 20 different languages. And it's so cool. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's part of the show because of falling through the cracks. And then other things about falling into place. And also the future falls to us. Because the end of the show is that that it falls to us to make it better. It's not that, oh, there's no hope, nothing can be done, but it falls to us. It doesn't fall to somebody else. It's our responsibility to make it better. So people will leave with the feeling of, we're not powerless about these terrible things falling apart. Oh, and my favorite song, Don't Fall for Crap. That's Don't Fall for favorite. Crap, right? Yeah, <laughs> because of so much of what's going on, it was like, Okay, well, don't fall for this. <laughs> yeah, that's that's sort of the yeah, yeah that's like a uh, but it ha- but, but people do it all the time. Yep. Yep. A lot. People do it all the time. What, We're it, seeing how people fall for it, all it, kinds it, it, of well, crap. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and I, we don't have to. No, we don't like, have to fall for stuff. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 like a bumper sticker I saw which was if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything. Oh my gosh, that's great. Cuz that is <laughs> Because the end of the song is, don't fall for crap. It's going to get better if we stand for light, if we stand for love, if we stand for truth. That's how the show, song ends. Because it's like, we don't have to fall for this crap. We don't have to. No, we don't. So, I mean, it's funny because the more I do it, the more people come up with how they use the word fall. I was at a writer's retreat a year ago working on this. And one night at dinner, because we all had to eat together, it was on a farm. Uh-huh. And I said, I have this pad of paper, and they're all writers. I said, could you just write down how you use the word fall? And I got back so much different stuff, and that's how I wrote the opening number, which is like, well, a, it's like a wrap of all the falls, all the way of falling. Just coming up Including with William Faulkner, by the way. <laughs> Someone, you know, there were Faulkner, writers. Right, right, so. yeah, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> All right. Falstaff. <laughs> yeah, 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 fall, so you got Falstaff. Yes. And, yeah. and Faulkner. And. The, yeah, those got thrown in just as a joke. But th- there were a lot of so things. So nobody did Jimmy Fallon or something? Oh, no, we didn't get that one. <laughs> I guess it was the pronunciation. But there's Niagara Falls, Bedford Falls, Cedar Falls, all those things. Chagrin Falls. Chagrin Falls. Oh, my gosh, I forgot that one. Of all things, I did so much theater in Chagrin Falls, I forgot about that one, but. But yeah, how, exactly. how long have you been doing theater for crying out loud? I, oh, since I professionally since I was eight years old. I first got on a stage by myself when I was four, when my family went to a magic show, and the magician wasn't quite ready. And he said, "Does anybody want to come up and sing a song while I'm setting up?" <laughs> and before my mother knew it, she didn't know I had gotten out of my seat. I can't remember it myself, but I got out of my seat, went up, and I, and I sang a song. And my mom looks, and she says, where's Anita? Oh, she's up there. And, you know, people think a four-year-old's going to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb, but I sang I'll Know When My Love Comes Along from Guys and Dolls. Because oh I knew all the musicals of that time. <laughs> my dad would always bring home the albums, and I would dance around in the living room because I wasn't, because I had a November birthday. I had to wait a year to go to kindergarten. So the right. whole year... As Mr. Rogers says, childhood play is rehearsal for life. My rehearsal for life was was doing shows in my living room. My mom would have to flip the record, but, you know, I would do My Fair Lady. I would do, um, geez, so, Well, My Fair Lady, Guys and Dolls. Camelot, I'm sure. Cam, uh, yes. And at, at one point, even Man of La Mancha came out. I don't know. Yeah. 
And, um, oh, geez, we had so many. Uh, Sound and Music came in when I was six, so I was already in school. But I went on doing this, you know. Wow. I, I made up my version of the show. So when I saw Oliver, I saw Oliver and I went, that's not how the show goes. When I saw My Fair Lady, I went, no, that's not how the show goes. I knew every song, but that's not how the show goes because in the album, you don't hear the, the no. script. So <laughs> I made up the whole story from the song that I was listening to. So I was like... Where did they get this? This is not what the show is. And, and so, so I'm just curious. So, so, so the album "My Fair Lady," just yes. because this is a little bit of trivia, you know. Okay. You know, is it? Is it? Was it the Broadway? Uh, it was. Cast? Oh, very good because the movie is Audrey Hepburn, but Julie Andrews was the. That's original, right. So she was on the album. I didn't know that at the time when um when I was eight and did my first professional job as an actress people ask me newspapers and stuff who who's your hero and I said Julie Andrews because of Mary Poppins and the movie of the sound of music is not Mary Martin that's right first Maria but I knew Julie Andrews as the and I was infatuated by Julie Andrews and I was wanted to take after her and well, you know, that's uh, well, if you're going to have an inspiration, it might as well be Julianne. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good choice because then later, as my life went on, people would say, Who are your, who are your, what is the word when you, who, who are your heroes? Who yeah, are your, stuff uh, like that. Uh, who are your influences? Influences, yeah. right, yeah. And I, I lost, I just, I kept saying, Well, no, I just do what I do. I, I don't like to try to be like some, but then I realized Joni Mitchell was one of mine, and James Taylor, and Carly Simon, yeah. and Carol King, singer songwriters, right. became a thing for me. Later on, I realized that those were my big influence, and I didn't realize Stephen Schwartz. It was all writers; it wasn't performers that I was like looking up to. Stephen Schwartz writing Pippin. I would sit in the piano try to figure that out, and I'm going. This is brilliant, and I still feel that way about Stephen Schwartz's work. When I work out one of their song, one of his songs, right? I got well, to it, meet him, and that was really cool. Well, you know, uh, for those people who aren't that familiar with, you know, like with some like like with Stephen Schwartz's Godspell, Wicked, Godspell, Wicked, Wicked. The, the Magic Show, um, that's right, uh, Pippin, yeah, yeah, because. Pip and 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 Pippin has some pretty unusual chord changes in oh, there. Oh, I love this. Especially song. like the well, the opening number, "Magic to Do," has a lot of yeah. interesting chord changes. Yeah, in and there, the song, you know. um, it was uh, my fine, "Corner of the Sky." Corner of the Sky, right? That was what I was so fascinated with, and Joni Mitchell's piano work I was fascinated with. So, as I I had learned so, to play the piano real early, so, too early. So did you learn the stuff that Fosse did with? Uh, with with Pippin or, or <laughs> oh that's a good question because without the without the percussion it was a little different but yeah. but it did sort of get me into a more funky place because he did more funky with right the, with the with Ben Vereen yeah um, it brought the the American musical theater to a different place really yeah, yeah I, I mean Hair had his own its own thing and shows like that but even Godspell had its own sound but Pippin really really was a cha a turning point with Stephen Schwartz. He also wrote The Baker's Wife, and some of the songs from that are gorgeous. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I did a review of Stephen Schwartz in 2004 where he came uh, to see it, and we got to talk, and 
I um, and I got to tell him that my favorite of his songs is "When You Believe," which is from Prince of Egypt, the movie. And he told us an interesting story. He said that that melody of "When You Believe," which is such a great song, he said was really originally written when Disney wanted him to do Mulan. Huh. That it was a song about something else, and that the fifths, the the musical fifths that are throughout it, were written as a Chinese. It was oh, an yeah, Asian right. thing. And he said it wasn't supposed to be a Jewish thing at all. But, it, but, but when it, they right. dropped him in favor of, I think, Alan Menken, they're all colleagues. Because I, I did the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, and all of these guys worked uh, were together there. And that's where I got, they evaluated my work, and I got to learn from them. So it was, it was, it was not a happy day when Stephen Schwartz found out they didn't like what he was doing with Mulan, and they brought in Alan Menken. But the people doing Prince of Egypt who were not Disney right. they picked up on Stephen Schwartz and I said well that was the best thing that ever happened because that song I have my children's choir to that song it is a symphony of wonderfulness I mean it's just about that though you see them walking out of Egypt you see right. them at the Red so, Sea so you, and so you, you think hear the song's the okay I think it's pretty okay <laughs> I've gotten six-year-olds five-year-olds to uh-huh, love this uh-huh. song because when they do it every Passover um the holiday where it's about right. moving out of That's Egypt. Right. Um, people, you know, think they're going to do like the songs about the goat and the song, you know, the kids' songs, but they sing from beginning to end when you believe, including when the kids sing in Hebrew and everything. And it's like, it's like a symphony, symphony. It's just an amazing thing. And the kids get it down. And it's not normal kids' fair, but I do that with my kids. We write songs that would not be normally kids songs and and that would you believe is the i mean sorry when you believe has um been our the thing that everybody looks forward to every year like we get to do it now again and it's this big you know my hands are all over like four hands on the piano it's i love steven schwartz i really do and he's a great guy he's a great really (laughs) the review we did had magic in it i learned how to play with a dove and I learned how to I learned how to make it look like they were dying or the sleeping and you know, it was really cool and then I did um, the song from Wicked uh, Defying Gravity okay. on a metal plate I was levitated 11 feet in the air with no chains or halter or anything I just had to stand on this metal plate with a stick behind me. It's just like a metal thing behind right, me. Right. And I'm singing, which is not an easy song, Defying Gravity. No. And they start to levitate me. And there's, there's, um, it's black on stage. It's just the spot on me. So you cannot see what's levitating me. And the trick is that you see me levitate in the air. But I had no safety things anywhere around me. That Nothing was holding. And I'm in an artificial leg. Yeah, right. So I don't. With an artificial leg, you don't know when your foot is solid no, you don't. on the ground. So at any moment, you, 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 it could have slid off the metal plate while I'm singing the high notes of Defying Gravity. I'm belting out this song. So I often would just like, my hands would go back to make sure that the the metal was behind me and everything. It's like, just keep singing, just keep singing. And then they brought me back down and I finished the song. Fortunately, through the whole run of the show, I never, no, nothing bad ever happened. But man, I was terrified the whole time. So I couldn't really enjoy singing this great song. Right. I still did it. But it was like, okay, don't sing too loud. You, you, the vibrations might slide your foot off the thing. It's hilarious. That's right. You can't, you know, and, and, uh, and 
there's something that people cannot tell about you no. on the podcast. <laughs> no, that's Which right. is that you have a right leg, yes. but your left leg is not with not you anymore. There. No, it was amputated in 1982. So, um, so when I'm on stage, I often am wearing an artificial leg. In the new show, I do a soft shoe number and I do a salsa dance and uh, but at one point I take the leg off and do tai chi during a song on one leg because that is what I've learned to be able to do tai chi on one leg which is odd because tai chi yeah. shifts from one leg to the other but for me I shift from my heel to the ball of my foot that's right my right foot is my ball of my foot and my left foot is the heel and it's it's a fascinating thing and I wrote this song called Body of a Fighter, which is in Spectacular Falls, which everyone seems to love that song. I love it too because it's very it's very serious and it's powerful and it does cover some of the things that I encounter in the business, in the industry of theater and media and you know, film, television. Well, yeah. The kind of things people have said to me and that I keep going. And so Body of a Fighter meaning physically but also mentally just just keep moving, just going. And I'm right. doing Tai Chi while I'm doing it. And the movements respond very much to what the lyrics are. And it's kind of gorgeous. I love doing it. And as long as I... Well, the great thing about the show is if I should fall, the, the name of the show is, is Spectacular Well, fall. just make your fall spectacular. <laughs> and I have never had an ordinary fall. Every fall I've had has been spectacular. If I'm going to fall, it's like, you know, like doing a bat flip when you get stuck in the turnstiles. I swear, I wish somebody videoed when I fell in the turnstiles one day because I felt like my body went up in the air. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it just, you know, I fell and broke my hand, which gets mentioned a couple times. And but it, but it wasn't just falling on the ground. It was in front of Ripley's Believe It or Not on Forty Second Street, <laughs> and I could not believe it. And the crutch slipped on a piece of plastic from Oy. from yeah. the Models, which was next to the Ripley's Believe It or Not. You know when um, you're selling clothes and you have dividers, yes, pieces they're plastic. Yes. Well, my crutch had slipped on one of those. Yeah, one and of those I was the down, size divider things. Yeah. yeah, divider, divider. That's the word. And I, the crutch went, and I, I was down on the ground before I knew it, but for some reason I turned my hand in and landed mm. there and broke my hand. And it wasn't just a little fall. It was a spectacular fall. And then instead of calling a 911 or, or mean, telling the management... You mean like you, what Ripley's, you should have done? What, all the things I could, should have done, all I could think was, there's an urgent care place on the other side of 8th Avenue. If I can just hop across 8th... Because I couldn't walk. Because I put my weight on my crutches on my hands. And I knew now that I couldn't use... Because I put my hand down and I felt this little... Little uh-huh. crutch. And I was like, oh my God, I'm standing here on 42nd Street... I mean, people were, it was rush hour. Of course it was rush hour. People running by. When I fell, I didn't get a chance to really think about it before two strangers, one on each side, lifted me up under my arms and kept moving. They they just didn't want me to get trampled. They didn't, like, stop to go, can we get you something? It was just, in New York, you don't want someone to get trampled. (laughs) They were walking. I don't even know where they came from. All I knew was that I felt one hand here, one hand here. They got me, and both of them like, okay, and they left. And still, the people oh, are coming. So they picked you up and then moved on. And then moved on. So I'm, I'm standing there thinking, I'm up. That's great. So I won't get trampled, but I can't walk. So what I did was uh, held the crutch, the crutches with my left hand, both hands, and I hopped 
from 42nd Street in front of Ripley's, which is not at the curb. It's like no. halfway through the block. So yeah. hopped to 8th Avenue, hopped across 8th Avenue. And you should have seen the, all these rush hour people coming from Port Authority. They come at me and they go, whoa! <laughs> it's like the sea party. It was the Red Sea. There we go. We got a theme. And they, yeah. they just, whoa! And I'm hopping like I mean it. You know, I'm like hopping with a just... Everything in my head was going, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. That was every hop was like, and I'm getting, I get past the entrance of Port Authority and suddenly a guy comes running past me and I'm going, what's that about? He goes up to the urgent care door, opens it for me. I don't know who he is, but thank you, thank you. I get through the first door. Then he goes inside, opens the second door because there had to be two doors. He opens the second door. I hop through and then he's gone before I can say, Excuse, thank, thank you. You know, they're just, gone. All these little angels just popped up to make sure I was okay. I, I am totally believe in angels now because it was like there were seven of them that day. Seven different angels just made sure I was where I needed to be, and like somebody lent my husband a wheelchair to come and get me because I lived. like half a block away but I couldn't get there so I'm in the urgent care and crying my eyes out when they said what can we do for you today I broke my hand and then they said I had to have surgery and then just by by because of angels out there I found I was able to get home in the wheelchair because my husband found this wheelchair and then and then uh, I was led to the exact right surgeon who um was uh, was the surgeon for all the Lincoln Center pianists and ar- harpists and all of the musicians who um, need their hands, right? Right. So I'm sitting in front of the best I could possibly be sitting in front of. Him. And after he did the surgery, he connected the um, the the scar, the incision, to my lifeline. So now I have to live to be 150. Because it ends here. Oh, because it ends all the way over there now. <laughs> yeah. So my life has just been extended by a hand surgeon. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was so great that he, um, he knew that I, I said, have you, worked, have you operated on someone who actually walks on their hands? And, of course, for a second, he's going, you're an acrobat? And I'm going, no, no, no. Walk on my hand. He was like, oh. He said, I'm, I've never done that, no. So we're going to have to see how this goes. And, and they put two, two uh, titanium screws in my hand. And, uh, but 12 weeks and later, now, And now I you was set off the uh, metal detector every I, time you You would go think through. so, but I don't. Well, you know, I walk up there, artificial leg, I take it off, I throw it on the conveyor, I put my crutches on the conveyor, and then I hop, and they go, can you do that? And I'm going, yeah, I can hop. Lady, just come on through. They, they finally have to give up because they're like, but, 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 but. And I'm like, just, just stay there. I'll hop right to you. And they're going, but do you need a cane? I'm going, no. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> right. Wow. It's my little magic so, trick. So why did you lose? See, I already know this, but let's why tell the I people lose my why leg? you lost your leg. Oh, that. Yeah. No, um, I was at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, it was... My dad had died in the fall of 1975. Mm-hmm. Six months later, I started, my legs started hurting, and I was at Carnegie Mellon doing a very intense uh, conservatory program. It's a very intense theater program, a drama program. Mm-hmm. And um, 
uh, six months later, I'm in my sophomore year, and, and it's starting to hurt really bad. I go to a chiropractor. He can't help it. The, the pain seems to be attached to my spine in some way. So um, that summer I go home. Doctors are saying it's sciatica because it felt right. that's what sciatica feels like. And now, oh, so, but they can't find anything wrong with my discs, you know, and the, nobody can figure it out. And it took till February of 1977. For nine out of ten doctors were telling me there was nothing wrong, and the tenth doctor in in uh, nineteen seventy seven found that it had to do with the nerve somehow it was being blocked. It was a huge tumor in my sciatic nerve, so, which is why it felt like sciatica. But right. it was in the nerve behind my thigh, my left thigh, and uh, so instead of an amputation then in nineteen seventy seven, they took the motor nerve out of my leg and gave me this very slim plastic brace because my foot would fall right. if it didn't stay in place. And I graduated. Uh, oh, I was a junior at that point. Went back to school six months after the surgery, and continued. Stayed there during the summer to make up for the lost time by assistant teaching the summer right. program for high school students, the pre college. And I caught up to my class and graduated with them while I was doing chemo and radiation. And I passed my stage fighting exam with a brace on my leg, which was so exciting because the, the guy who comes over from England to judge you, didn't. we decided not to tell him that I had any disability, that I'm just going gonna, gonna to compete with everybody else. And uh, we did a scene from Anne of a Thousand Days with... I had a partner named Roscoe Gilliam who went uh-huh. on to do Chorus Line on Broadway like, oh, wow. right after that. He, he didn't even do senior year with us. But he was the only one brave enough who said, I'll do your fight with you because nobody else wanted to do it. It was like, really? what if I hurt her? Because I'd been through cancer and I was taking so they were, chemo yeah, and radiation. So they were treating you with kid gloves. Kid and- gloves. But Roscoe, this incredible, talented black guy who just was just so phenomenally talented singer dancer actor triple threat it was no surprise to anyone that he went on to do chorus line because that's him that was him and out of all the people in my high-powered class that had cherry jones in it and diane fred and tony all these people who went on to do great things that roscoe just said he would help me and later i found out he was terrified the whole time he was so afraid he would hurt me and i made a mistake on the day of the fight exam we were practicing and i made a false move and, and you whacked we had him. to do yeah well no I whacked myself oh, okay. we were doing daggers quarter staffs and fists you know this f- stage fight As you know, do. a scene yeah. from Anne of a Thousand Days right. so Henry and Anne are duking it out basically this was an amazing thing and I had learned how to do everything I could hop over the quarter staff I could do oh swords we had swords too we had all these instruments you know it's like do this and then you pick up the next thing and the dagger thing I made a wrong move and he he gave me a fat lip at that moment and of course this was his worst fear was what if I hurt her and I'm going it was me it was me it was not you it was me and then we have to go downstairs and do the thing I got the fat lift to prove. <laughs> it was like but we did it and it was so good it was it was great acting it was great fighting it was it was a well choreographed beginning to end fight and we got great grades on it we had we were rated really high we both passed but with flying colors and bh berry our teacher came we had a little champagne ceremony where he sat us down and he said and you gotta know 
Anita nailed it because <laughs> it was like that was the person we just didn't know. But he had worked with a, a guy with an artificial leg before that. So he said, anyone can learn this. Anyone can learn to do this. So anyway, so I did graduate with my class, went on to do Laura in Glass Menagerie was my out of school first professional gig out of school, even though I had been doing professional stuff up until then, was Laura and Glass Menagerie. Which I thought was a riot because brace on the leg. That's well, what you she already got she one, talks about right? a brace on the legs, which was fantastic. And I went on to go to London and uh, studied at Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And they kept me on to tour Europe with a company out of the school. I was doing a one-year program, but after the year was over, it was an international thing. They said, would you stay to be the vocal coach and act in a piece about Elizabeth I? And we took it to Holland and Belgium and Wales and London. And I had this brace, but I still danced. I just couldn't wear heels. But right. we sang, danced, and acted our ways. We did magicals. And all these kids were Brits, and they were younger than me, but I was sort of the mother hen. And when they lost their voice because they stayed out all night in Amsterdam, you know, I was the one who nursed as, them as back you do. to hell. That's right. These were kids, and they were let loose in Amsterdam. <laughs> Forget it. Um, I made sure, and, and I taught them how to warm up. I, they had never done that. And they... I, I didn't teach them at first. I just, they all saw me every day. I would be warming up at the piano and saying, yes, each one lost their voice and I helped them get it back. They started coming to the warm up and like one by one, the whole company. So it ended up, we did this fabulous warm up, which became part of what we did on tour. People would say, our students would like to see what you do to warm up. Oh, sure. It was like it became part of the performance. But all of that was with the brace on my leg. Came back. Worked in Copenhagen, did a couple other things, came back to the States, went to Boston, uh-huh. where my friend was at Berkeley School of Music doing a um, jazz concert, Fats Waller. Right. And I said, and he said, would you come and sing in it and choreograph it? Okay. This is so really cool to think that somebody said, come and choreograph it, which I did. And then while I was living in Boston was when I got the recurrence because the pain came back. And, uh, and I have had had signed on to direct and perform in Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Paris, a musical. That's right. the whole title. Um, this wonderful review of Jacques Brel's yeah. Flemish and French songs, and um, I was very excited about it. I was part of the reason we did because I had chosen it. They wanted me to direct it, and then I got diagnosed. So I'm. The day I got diagnosed, I made a schedule for the cast and the musical director and the stage manager. So around my, they had a bi, they gave me a biopsy. It was definitely going to have to be an amputation. And I got the whole cast and the stage manager and music director around my bed, like Winston Churchill did this kind of thing. <laughs> and I was born on Winston Churchill's birthday, so this is perfect. So they're sitting, <laughs> standing around the bed, uh-huh. and I said, so here's the schedule I've mapped out for the next two weeks. I've talked to the PT department. I get the amputation on Friday. On Sunday, they'll be rolling me over in bed. By Monday, we'll be up and on crutches. So in two, two weeks... I'll be able to come back to rehearsal. I won't have a leg, but I will be able to come back on one leg and crutches. So two weeks late, and they didn't believe it except the stage manager who said, if Anita says that's what we're going to do, that's what that's we're going to do. do. Right. And they did. They went back to rehearsal. They worked on the music, the harmonies, the, and they, um, they got it really solid while I was learning to walk. And then I would come 
at two weeks later, I would come to rehearsals for four hours an evening from seven to eleven. Right. Because that's how long the medic, the pain medication would last. Uh, four hours. So I said, I sat them down and I said, okay, we're gonna rehearse every night for four hours. I'm coming from the hospital, going back to the hospital. I believe I have been given a leave of absence four hours a night. So we have to do everything in four hours. So you can take a break whenever you want, but we won't have formal breaks like we should have. But you, when you're not on stage, go take a break. Um, and they took my leg, but they didn't take my brain. So just stick with me. We're going to get through this. And I choreographed things on one leg and crutches. I would go, okay, you know, step, kick, step. You know what I'm talking about. And they would do it. I'm like, okay, so, all right, so now you're going to do, you know, jazz square. You guys know how to do a jazz square. Steps, and I would show them with my hands. And they go, yeah, we know how to. It was all choreographed, literally, on one leg. It was hilarious because the staging, that's what I came back to do. We opened the show two weeks after that. Wow. Four weeks after the amputation, they had barely made me a temporary leg, which was a bucket and a pole and a foot um, with a little hinge where the knee would be. And uh, I wore a long dress. I used crutches. I had, we had designed a set that had a few little stairs in it that we would go up to a little perch to sing like Marika from above, you know, right. to get levels. I went up the steps on crutches, so what, you know? And carousel and was all of these moving parts, you know, and I just became one of them. The crutches became part of my mechanics. Right, right. And, um, so that's when I lost my leg, and and we, and and the gift in that was that I had a show to get ready. That I didn't have time to feel bad about it. I had, I mean, I, for one day I cried, but I really didn't have time to feel sorry for myself. Well, you had something to I had do. Had a show, and that's the gift is that I had something to do. Like the first operation when I had school, six weeks later back at school because I ha- I wanted to graduate with people, and I think that having that carrot on the stick in front of me in both cases uh was my was my savior because it was like i had no time to think this sucks it did suck but at the same time it was a fascinating suckiness because it was like because i have something to do i have i have this and I have this project to complete that I've committed exactly. to, to completing. That's right. I was not walking away from that. I was not. I did cancel one singing engagement because it was literally right when I was going to be losing my leg. And I, was, I had to call these people and go, yeah, I'm having my leg amputated. I mean, what an excuse, right? <laughs> that's true. I, I can't I, do the gig. I know it's been on the books for an, a year, and I'm so sorry. It's your big yeah, event. I'm, but I'm having my leg. I mean, the... A tax person uh, yeah. from H&R Block called uh-huh. me, somehow got my number in the hospital, and I'm in my hospital room. They're talking about how the taxes are going to cost more money than they thought, and I'm going, I'm having my leg amputated. Uh, and they went, oh, n- never mind. <laughs> they this, didn't this call, is like charge a trivial me the thing. extra money. It's, it's like... I'll be back, but I'm having my leg removed tomorrow, and I can't really deal with this right now. And they said, never mind. And the tax people just... Just did it, you know. They did the the taxes because it was a, you know, it's it was a, great, a gift. It was yeah, a, great a great excuse for yeah. Anything. I'd let you, I'd let you slide. And I could have <laughs> said that with the show, but that was the right. point. Was if I can do this, I can do anything. If I can manage this, if I can pull through and make this happen, then I know I can do anything. And this was in eighty two. Eighty two. You this and, and like you're about to do your second one woman show 
Oh no! You, in 1982, those. No, 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 no. Well, oh, not right now. So, so what I'm saying is that in no. the last what? See, so 82 is like that's 36 years now. 37. So, yeah. yeah. So, what? How many shows have you done in the interim? Yeah, this is a good question because I because of the Jacques Brel thing, I knew that I could go from show to show. I could still work, and it was shortly after that that I got the job. I got recommended for a job at NYU teaching voice to actors in the experimental theater wing. And my goal had always been that I want to end up in New York. I didn't mind that I'd been to Pittsburgh and right. Boston and uh, all to Europe. I wanted to do all those things, but that I felt that my path should end up in New York. And I didn't want to go if I didn't have even one job. It could be a sm- a small little job, but I didn't want to move there with nothing like a lot of people were doing. Like, here I am, New York, right. except me. <laughs> right. I was like, that's not the way to go. So this offer to teach at NYU was like, yes, grabbed onto it. People were saying, hey, Boston's a lot easier on you with one leg. New York is going to be really hard, and you're going to have to, like, the reality, the bright light's going to shine, and you're going to realize you have one leg. And I'm like, oh, no, I know I have one leg. You don't have to. There's no bright light that can suddenly tell me I have one leg. There's no, but it's so hard. You have to walk places. And well, like, yeah, but if you can make it there. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I, I moved down there, started teaching immediately, found NYU. You helped me to find an apartment, which they wouldn't have done because I was an adjunct professor. But hey, pulled the one-legged card, got an apartment on the campus, which was in the same building as Mayor Koch at the time. Really? He was on the the top floor. I was on the ninth floor. I was like, you can't do better than that. No. Anything goes wrong, Mayor's upstairs. (laughs) It was on Washington Square. It was beautiful. It wasn't a great job because Experimental Theater Wing was, was full of kids that they accepted at the school probably because they could afford it. It's very expensive. And they were the ones they didn't know where to put. Like Uh, Stella Adler or uh, Cat 21, all these different, or writers and artists. These were the kids who didn't fit anywhere. Experimental theater wing. So these were the avant-garde. But most of them were just very spoiled children whose parents were psychologists. And they expected the world to come to them. Well, my voice work was not that way. It was you have to work on yourself. All of you. Because the way I got my voice back after all the cancer stuff. Right. Because I lost my voice out of the shock of it the first time. Was to learn how the voice is developed through the whole body. Not, right. not from the neck up. Not... Your, your vocal cords are just, they, they are just the vibrating part of it, but the breath is where it starts. And your feelings are involved. It's a very deep thing, voice work. And these were kids who were not there. The transfer students were like, they were all on me. It was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. But it wasn't a great job. But it was the catalyst. It got me to New York. It got me an apartment. And from there on... Because I auditioned for the BMI workshop and the ASCAP workshop for writers, because by then I was starting to write. In fact, it was 1977, I wrote the first song called The Choice, which ended up being the cornerstone of Still Standing. It was, a, mm. it was not a happy song. It was someone, my, one of my teachers at Carnegie Mellon said that she felt that my singing Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and Carly Simon, that's all very well, but she said, but you're not telling, you just went through this cataclysmic thing in your life and you haven't told us a thing about it. And I said, oh, you want me to write my own songs now? She goes, "Mm mm-hmm. 
If you have and it. And I wrote that song to spite her overnight. I wrote the song, The Choice, which is about what it feels like at 3 a.m. in the hospital. Like, and you think you're going to die. And I thought, this is the most depressing song in the world. She will shut up after, after this. She will never tell me to write another song. And I sang it for her the next morning. And I said, you see... She goes, yeah, that's what I was talking about. That's people right. want to know. Right. They will relate to it. You have no idea how many people will relate to this song. And sure enough, through the run, it took 16 years from 1977 on to write Still Standing. And when I finished, it was 1993. And it sort of, the song took me from where I felt like from the choice up till getting married, having a child, uh, it, that's where it ends, 1993. And it's a great show about, sorry, <laughs> that's pretty braggy, but what I'm saying it is, it is a great show for a purpose. The purpose is that every well, song is a tool for survival. Yeah. Still standing, colon, um, a survival musical survival guide for life's catastrophes. And every song along my path of my story was illustrated one tool for survival that we don't have to buy. It's not at the hardware store. We have it inside of us, like a sense of humor, a perspective, chutzpah, balls, basically. Right. Um, you know, children, marriage, love. Um, Having uh, friends, uh, family, support. Friends, fa- yes, all these things right. that you can find from yourself. It's not a bought and paid for thing. And people... For the past 26 years, I've taken it all over the world, the show still standing, and people have really related to it. Somewhere along those 26 years, 16 years ago from now, it took 16 years to write a new show. I didn't start writing those songs for this new show thinking it was a new show. I just write songs about stuff (laughs) with my choir. And in my life, my, my aunt... Uh, the other day, she's very old now, she's 94, and she asked me the greatest question. And everybody's saying, oh, she's got Alzheimer's, she's senile, she's, she can't really understand things. Well, we sat at lunch, and she looked into my eyes, and she goes, so where do you feel like you make the least amount of trouble? And I loved that question. I said, I love that question because I'm trouble. I am trouble. Everywhere I go, I say the wrong thing. I do the wrong And I said, you know what? I got to think about it. And I thought, and I said, behind a piano, on a piano bench, at a piano, that's where I am yeah. the safest. I make the least amount of trouble. That doesn't mean I don't write songs that are going to offend somewhere along the line, but, but I feel safest behind that's a right. piano, that's... doing music and writing songs or warming up my voice or teaching voice. Or... I mean, I just feel like I can make the least amount of trouble if right. I just, which is why all through my life at Carnegie Mellon, at Lambda, in Boston, if I have a practice room. At, at Shaker Heights High School, the room I spent the most time in those four years was the practice room in the choir room. I don't know if you were one involved with the, the choir. Yeah, they had two little practice rooms. I, that I, one I, with the window where you can see, yeah. you can look into the choir room. I would, my, my study hall, you know, those periods where you yeah, don't right. have a class. I was in there at the piano doing whatever. I wasn't writing songs at that point. I just needed, that was my safe space. Just if I need a safe space, I'm going to the piano, I'm going to the practice room. At Carnegie Mellon, whenever I felt like it was too overwhelming, went to the music department, practice room. And people knew this about me. And in the mornings, we would start every day with something called dynamics, where we did yoga and Pilates. Yes, they had Pilates in 1974. And um, we would do a physical, all, the whole 
a- acting student population, right. which was not very big. Each class had only just a few people in it. But, I mean, well, they w- went from 36 acceptees down to 12, or sometimes two who graduated. They had an attrition rate. People oh, wow. got eliminated there. So the group would all work out together, warm up together with this wonderful teacher, Jewel Walker. But I would get there early because there was a piano in that hall. It was a, when, in the gym it, called Thistle Hall. So I'd go early and play the piano because that was my safe space. And if I didn't have a piano, which I didn't in the dorm or in the right. you know, apartment that I got, I needed to be near a piano and just like that's my safe space. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone like aggravated me, I would go to a practice room and I would play music. Yeah. Piano is always safe. You go to a cocktail party, you don't know what to say. Oh, there's a piano. There's a piano. <laughs> I think I'll just sit down and play some music. Yeah, the really only trouble cool. is that you could wind up there for three hours yes. because now so now suddenly people start requesting. Can you play? It's the request. I don't mind being there for three hours. It's when somebody requests something that you, it's really hard to play and then you just fall all over yourself <laughs> because you want to please them, but you play it really badly or something. But I've gotten so much better now that I almost... I can figure things out to play because literally that's where I've spent most of my time is at a piano. No, yeah, yeah, I was at one I, point I had two pianos in New York because yeah. someone gave me one and I had this little ship's yeah. piano. I, I was I was in the choir. Uh, you but, were, of course. But but, but wait, a, the, how how I wound up in the choir is a kind of a weird story uh-huh. because, <laughs> because let's see because you, you know it's like what people don't know is you're three years ahead of me, but we went to the. We went to the same junior high and went to the same high school. So I went to Byron Junior High. Yeah, absolutely. And Mr. I went to Shaker Heights High. Yes, Mr. DeJohn. So, so you know, in Byron, when you, you'd try out for the choir and then you'd get, like a, right. you'd get a little slip of paper telling you which choir you were in. Yes. So you would... So you'd have you do while well, you're still theater. in Byron right. for the high school. Is that right? But, but, but wait. So, oh, no, in so, Byron. Okay. So, so in Byron, the how junior. I wound up... Yeah, in junior high, this is how I wound up in choir and how I wound up in theater. It's because I had no interest in doing any of those things. I really, you know, while people in the arts always have, I've always had a fascination with music. I've always loved listening to music, playing uh-huh. music. I like singing, but I've never had a desire to do it in front of people. Uh, I've that's never, my sister Lisa. I, I've never had a, I've never had a real desire to do it in front of people. You just love it. I just I just like it. I, I like watching movies. I you yeah. know I, I like you know I like the process. I like learning about the process. I like you know I like all, but I've never really had a huge desire to. And and most of my friends are in the arts. I those kinds of people I gravitate to those those people, but so. So in eight, at the end of eighth grade, I got one of those slips telling me that I was in the choir the following year. What? I didn't try out for the choir. How did that happen? He must have heard me singing in music class or something. Okay. Because you know, because we did have music. Yeah, we had to have we you know because we had because you know a well rounded in, 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 in our school system we arts. had to, ev- everybody had to take an art class that's right. everybody had to take a music class whether at home it, ec you, or wood shop that's right home <laughs> ec or wood shop everybody had to do those things that's and, right and uh uh so so in so he must have heard me sing so he thought i had a facility for it so i got a slip saying that i was in the choir <laughs> So I go down to Mr. DeJohn's office. This and I go, must be a mistake. I said, 
Mr. Dijon, I, I, I didn't, I didn't try out for choir. And he goes, Jimmy, you're in choir. I go, but I didn't try out. Well, yeah, yeah, but you're in choir. <laughs> I love it. Okay. And then he, and then it, like when we did our musical in the spring, he which goes, was uh, pajama game. Oh, so Lisa, when Lisa played right. the lead, oh, my right. sister Lisa. Yeah, your sister Lisa was the lead. The one who ended up not wanting to sing in front of people. That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> that's correct. And he goes, you, you ought to think about trying out. And okay. For the for the musical, and I go, all right. So I tried it out. It was fun, and it was the first time that me being an odd person didn't count against me. It was in your favor, probably. Yes. So then when I went up to senior high school, because this was about the only time they had ever done it, was that because Lisa and I and a couple of other people were selected to be in the... No, it happened in my year, too. Same thing. In ninth grade, I got the word about Chanticleers and about... Yeah, so you got... Because they didn't put sophomores... Not concert choir, yeah, because they would put they regular put, sophomores they, in well, they put choir. Yeah, they put sophomores, mostly... But the, the so- acapella the choir The acapella choir was like the, basically the varsity. I remember that in ninth grade that I said, you're so, already in. So you, what? So you so that happened to you, too, because so, it didn't happen. It didn't happen with every class. It might not have happened with every class. That's it right. didn't happen with every class. So you and Lisa. Yeah, Lisa and I, your sister and I were, were... What did you play in Pajama Game? Oh, I was. I had a non-singing role in Pajama Game, oh, oddly that's crazy. enough. That's funny. Oh, that's funny. So I had a non-singing role. I was but playing you got old, I was an old man hassler. Oh, that's funny. And uh, because I was the boss, you know, and, and, and what I did was I did it because McLeod was one of my favorite TV shows. I did a J.D. Cannon imitation for 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 mr hassler so they got so, your personality that's right so i so i went up there and i, oh my I and i was doing that the whole time and oh that's a right you know marx and klein those communists they put yeah, you so, in choir for a reason you yeah, were their they did. character actor I, yeah i'm oh a character well i'm a character yeah <laughs> what a riot so yeah so so that's how i what? wound up in in you know Question, go sort ahead. of unrelated, but what elementary school did you go to? I went to Lomond. Ah, uh, that was a cool school. We were in Mercer, but the coolest yeah. people we met at Byron were the Lomond people. I thought that's there were some cool people at Sussex too, but Lomond was really cool. Well, that's I don't I yeah I, but but the 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 other interesting thing is we I I find that we had an unusual high school experience. Yeah, not just because we went to that school. And I suppose it's because, the, well, first of all, the community had all five quintiles of the socioeconomic classes, yeah. and they all went to public school. Exactly. So rich people don't intimidate me. Yeah. Because I went to school with rich people, even though I wasn't one of them. Right. But we would still go to a party in a house with five bedrooms, well, with right. five bathrooms. Shaker Boulevard yeah. mansion. With, yeah, some mansion with five bathrooms, not five bedrooms. No. Nine I know what you're talking bedrooms, about. Yeah. 8,000 square feet. You it know. was. That's what Shaker Heights was. And right. I and, think and, still and they'd is. come, or they'd come to my house and not put on airs, you know. No, because we learned... Because we were just together. just kids, right? And be together right. and sing together. The, the choir. When I went to my reunion Saturday night, 40th reunion, what was beautiful to me was how diverse we were and how we were all 
just the smart, motivated, interesting people of all diversities. And again, socioeconomic was not a problem. We were all... I, I sent pictures to my daughter who has grown up in New York City in Manhattan, public schools right. right from the beginning right up. And when she was looking at colleges, she did not want to go to a college that had one kind of people, you know. She's like, oh, too white, I'm not staying, you know. Oh, gee, yeah. She wanted a college that reflected what she grew up with in New York City. And what I tell her is that I grew up in a community that was as diverse as New York City in the middle of a in a plop down in the middle of Ohio where it right. wasn't true if you went to Cleveland Heights. No, it wasn't it was true if you went to Akron or no, Kansas. It was, it was Shaker was this place that was like, this is how the world should look. This is the right. American cool. scene. And I, I'm sent, I sent them to her because I said, I just want you to know that that was me too. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 like, you because, you, well, you were, I know you were in the Chanticleers. Yes. And you remember we had that Christmas gig every yeah. year at the country club. Yes. Where we had to go to the Shaker Country Club. I remember. And one of the white kids in the ensemble whispered over to me, Look at this crowd. You believe how white these people are? <laughs> That's the thing. That's, and she's, she's yeah. like, this is not our community. This, this is, is not these aren't our kind who of people. we are. <laughs> And that's what it, and that's Holland, my daughter, Holland Hamilton. She is the whitest person. Oh my God. Because her dad is of Irish and Scotch. Really? You know, yeah. I'm the Hungarian, Eastern yeah. Europe, Russian. So I've got olive in my, but my husband, you know, the pinky white. You know, and she is the flashlight. I, she She's, was in, as, she as was, they say in Australia, bluey. Because you could see the blue veins right, in her. Right. She's know. so she's so white. Yeah. And she um she was in school, you know, all the way with people of all different colors, sizes, shapes, different um genders, uh sexual preference, everything. This was New York City right. public school from beginning to end. And um in her high school she was in a high school for performing artists, and um she got she got to be in the MCC Theater Youth Company, okay. which is one of the resident companies in New York. And she was the only white girl who decided to be in this program. She couldn't understand why her any of her white colleagues and schoolmates weren't... Somebody comes in and says, do you want to be in a playwriting workshop? Holland's hand shuts. Want to be in a... Um, in an acting program at MCC, she, she was just always like, yes. And these were performing artist students. They were like, eh. But she got into this group where she was the only white girl at, in the first few years of this program. Uh -huh. And they called her the flashlight because when they were all <laughs> backstage waiting for their cue, they, they could always see Holland. She reflected any kind of light. that oh, was like, Holland, what? When do we do that? It's just like, it's cool. But um, but that's the world that she always wants to live in, and she does not want to live in a homogenous society. And that was such a great thing. And that I said, I I didn't grow up in, even though the reputation of Ohio is so the Republican thing and the conservative thing. And I said, well, but you know, if but, but if you went to Shaker, you learned to live with other people, all kinds of people who were all look different and we could right. all get along and we work together towards our goals. And uh, 
And she thought that was pretty cool. Ended up going to Oberlin for college and being in the African American Theater Company there and went to Namibia for four months. Wow. She just, that's, she wanted, she went with the intention of being an African-American studies major, but the theater company, uh, the theater well, department it's in her broke her in because her resume was already so well, good. Besides, but it's in her instead DNA of acting, it. she thought, well, <laughs> if you want me in the, well, yeah, it is that too. She said, I'll direct, I'll stage manage, but you know, I've been acting all through, I've had seven years of, of uh, public school conservatory basically was right. half my day was spent doing performing so I know how to do that I'm not here to learn that um, but then they had her direct and stage but both musicals that happened at Oberlin while she was there Reefer Madness and Flora <laughs> the Red Menace she was the lead in that they just said but you do this so well <laughs> right and she was happy because John Kander the writer of Flora the Red Menace came out and did some changes to the he wanted to make some changes to the show, so he, she got to work with John Kander at Oberlin. But Oberlin was her choice because she could work on African-American studies and be with people who she related to because it was what she, New York was about. And yet she, was, she said, I'm going to live in New York. I'm pretty much sure I'm going to be going back to New York, so why don't I live somewhere where it's completely different? And Oberlin couldn't be more well, different you're right about that. as far as nature's it's concerned. It's out in the county. She walked barefoot you know, That's for four right. years. <laughs> she, it, it's the hippie school. I mean, you know, so. But she, and, then, and now she's getting married in March, and, and her wedding party is... Colors of the Rainbow, because that's what, that's her world. And I'm just, I'm real proud of her, because that's that's what the world should look like. We are from well, everywhere. You know, we are from all over the place. Well, here's the thing. That's what it does look and like. And people with disabilities, excuse me. People often leave out people with disabilities, disabilities. when they're talking about the rainbow. What? It's like, hello, well, we are also that, because who? we also get discriminated against. What, what do you know about disabilities? Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, that's yeah. been a big thing. So, sounds like you might have a little challenge, but it doesn't, yeah, well, doesn't sound is, so far. It doesn't sound like well, it's been mom, much of a disability. Yeah, my for daughter you. always says, well, "Mom, <laughs> you're not really disabled." I know you have one leg, but we nobody thinks of you. But but because I my profession my professional work has continued through all of the one legged stuff, and I've gotten work where a lot of people with disabilities wouldn't have gotten an audition. I started becoming. Um, like for the past 40 years, I've been the, involved in activism and advocacy for performers with disabilities. And I became the national chair of performers with disabilities at SAG-AFTRA, the, really? the, the Screen the Actors act Guild, right. act, um, the, the American Actors Federation, Union, right. Temple, uh, not Temple, Temple no, that's the other job, artist, television right. radio artists. But also there's Actors' Equity. So I've worked with all of these unions and we did a campaign called IMPWD, Inclusion in the Arts and Media of People with Disabilities, back in 2009 till 2012. It was a three-year campaign which jump-started a whole movement of, uh, I'm the watchdog, because I said, hey, I can be a bitch, I'm a watchdog. I, I will um, keep track of all the places where performers with disabilities show up, and I've kept this scorecard over the years for now 10 years which has 
that data from that list has gone out to the media and to the networks. And I'm negotiating with Hollywood producers and Broadway producers and regional producers and right. for theater, television, and because, uh, yeah, if, recording if, artists. Well, if a person is, if a character is blind, unless there's a reason. Yeah. And it has to be a damn good reason that they should at least be auditioning blind actors if it's a blind role, if or it's a deaf, deaf role, whatever, right. if it's an amputee, if it's a person in a wheelchair, if it's CP, if it's autism even, because there's some great actors who are on the autism spectrum who have not yeah, yeah. told anybody, but yeah, like yeah, Asperger's but, and stuff. Yeah, but they're but, great actors. Yeah, yeah, about two-thirds of the actors probably have Asperger's. <laughs> well, this is the thing that Which is why you they became actors that in that the they're, first place. Right, that they, you give them a script and they're going to do it. It's going to be consistent from beginning to end. They're not going to veer from it. It's going to be the right... And This is what people didn't understand. Well, if they're really autistic, how can we work with them? And I'm going, they're going to be the best workers because they are very literal. Well, a lot of the actors with Asperger's that I know are very literal. Yes, it's like, are. if I'm going to move from here to here, it's going to happen that way. I'm going to make sure it is exactly the same thing every performance. You, Plenty of actors, you can't get the same performance. No, you cannot. And, and being consistent, to me, is one of my high priorities in theater. If you're going to do eight shows a week... I want to be consistent. I may not be well, the best well, to every performance, right. but I have. I will not go below a certain You're bar. Right. I've got to be consistent, not only for myself and my own performance and the audience, but for the people I'm working with on stage. If I'm inconsistent, that throws them off. And Alec Baldwin is the worst at this. That well, He worked with Jan Maxwell, my dear friend and neighbor, on Broadway together, and she didn't know what he was going to do from well, performance he's a really to good, performance. The trouble with him is he's a really good improviser. Yes, exactly. And he's, he, he's brilliant at that. <laughs> but, he's a really but good when improviser. you do some things that could hurt somebody else on stage or could really mess up their work in a play that is not an improvisation, the, well, it, it, it's a mess. And he, it's and it's very selfish. It's well, very egotistical. The, the other, he's a really good actor and and and, and an okay reactor. Yeah, maybe less okay, but yeah, he's there <laughs> to do his stuff. But you know, he's it's it's interesting wants, because does, right. people in shows with Robin Williams or with Jerry Lewis always knew that at some point Jerry Lewis was going to go off on a right on a thing and. Everybody suspends what they're doing while Jerry Lewis does his shtick. Damn Yankees. He toured Damn Yankees. And my sister Rachel was uh, interpreting it for the deaf. And she knew from the cast telling her. Was he playing Applegate? Applegate. Okay. So you know. Yeah, yeah. Perfect opportunity to do any shtick he wanted to do. But in the middle of the song where he does the history of himself as the devil... Those she the, knew that the, at the certain point whatever, yeah. she was just going to stop interpreting and watch and just, ta- you know, it's like the deaf community was like, okay, now we're just turning it over to Jerry. Because it was physical shtick. It didn't, almost didn't matter if he was talking because it was shtick. Right. And she would just be like, and if he said something, she would go, oh, he's just said this. You know, but it right. was basically she knew that it, that was going to happen. And the actors on stage knew that when Jerry was going to do shtick, we, they all just... We'll just let him do it. Let him do it. And then they'd go back into the scene. You know, they love me, friends. Exactly. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And that, you know, get to no, be known for doing stuff like that. But in the, in the situation that 
my friend Jan was in with him, with Alec Baldwin. Um, it was not, it was terribly unfair. It was actually doing things that would, um, would, ups, would mess up the other person's timing, performance, and anything, literally. She was as good an improviser. She had done children's theater when she was younger, but she was a pro, and her thing was she was consistent and hilarious and wonderful and deep, and I mean... The last thing she did before she died on Broadway was, I think, Follies, which was enormous. Mm -hmm. And she would put 150% into everything she did. He would jeopardize her performance by, like, not opening a door when it was supposed to be open or, or pulling, pushing back on something that was timed very carefully for the humor of the moment, and he would decide that he would change it. So he got stage. real tired of. Oh, totally, totally, because she knew yes. what she w her job was those to are, do this thing. Those are that's the moves. And then, oh, totally. There were there were some other things that I'd were say just some stuff to awful. Him. <laughs> it was like, why don't I just? make your life miserable for two hours. And yeah. she finally left the show because she said, I um, can't do it anymore. And she, she uh, unfortunately, she, she missed an, an interview with um, a New York Post writer, and she emailed him the reason why. She said, you know, things are going very difficult. And she told him what was, because they were friends, this writer. Right, and right, right. She told him what had been going on with Alec, with work. Uh-huh. He took that email, and they printed it on the front page of New York Post. In other so, words, so this he, was confidential. This was an off-the-record conversation. They were going to get together for dinner and talk about the show, and then he was going to write something up about her, a feature about right. her. But she wanted to apologize because she didn't do the show that day. She said, I can't meet with you because I'm not, doing, I'm not going on today. Ugh. Here's what's going on. And she, of course, you know, kicked herself forever because she told him, but Anne put it in writing. And then, bang, word for word, the whole email shows up on the front page of the Post. Then the Time magazine picked up on it. This wasn't just the New York Post. This was, you know, this is our local newspaper. No, Time magazine decides to do a little thing about it. And she's mortified because they interview Mr. Baldwin, who says, oh, she's such a bitch. She's like, she must have my lawyers. She must be in cahoots with my, my wife, you know, who was divorcing him at the time. Right, right. And, you know. And, and then like, a little later, the, uh, the, that, that infamous uh, tape of him talking to his daughter comes out. And, and the thing with his car, you know, abusing the right. guy who was parked in his spot. spot. Right. I mean, the man's not nice. <laughs> but but he he dragged Jan through the mud by saying what an awful bitch she was and everything and this poor, I was babysitting for Jan's son at the time and we were very close anyways we're neighbors and she just was like she wanted to hide for forever she didn't think she would ever do another acting gig which not true she got eight Tony nominations in there her we life go. she went back because people said you can't you can't hide in a hole it happened sometimes bad press is it's press. 
Right. Your name well, is now on the map. He did you a favor. You know, because besides, now right. people, who's Jan Maxwell? She's an right. eight-time Tony nominee. Well, I mean, well, and like, the, well, the other thing, too, is she's not the only one who's had a bad experience with an actor. Oh, yeah. that It's true, because people then started commiserating with her and saying, blah, Oh, blah, yeah, blah, what does this happen to me? With me. And so she, I thought I was the only one. Right. I just remember how mortified, how because she was a pretty private person. Yeah. And that was never... That was an apology of why she couldn't meet with this this writer. Right. And of course she never again she no, took herself off social right. media. She took, she just shut down so many things. But people wanted her so much in shows and stuff. And then she 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 was tireless, but then she got cancer and within a short time she died and it was this bright light of Broadway. And she was on Madam Secretary. They had cast her as the the vice president. She did a season where she showed up on the show. And then the next season, we was like, where's Jan? Because another actress walked in when they said the vice president was like, Jan's going to be on again. I, I talked to Jan. I said, sick. what's the matter? And Jan would not tell people that she was sick. So even though I was babysitting for her son and her son was oh, not Oh, she didn't allowed, tell you either. She, I was like close friends. And... Her son and I had, we still have this great friendship through the years now that he's an adult, but we, we did so much fun stuff. But when I was babysitting there, he was sworn to secrecy. I was never allowed to know that she was walking around with this thing. She had it, but she was able to still work. In- yeah, but I was not allowed to know. Her husband, who was my dad, my, sorry, my husband. My husband's best friend was her husband. They, gotcha. That's how we all knew each other to begin with, before we were neighbors. And the husband was not allowed to say a word. They, she swore them to secrecy because she thought it would hurt her her professional work because after what had happened with the post, she right, did not right, want anybody right, to know right. her personal life. And all these years, a lot of time went by while she was working, but she was having chemo or she was working. but And it was just so... So strange that in the end, um, she kept things private because of what had happened. But then when she died, it was a shock to the whole uh, thing. And she didn't show up on Madam Secretary. And they, and when I asked her about it, she was walking her dog. Oh, well, I said, yeah. what happened? And she said, I don't think uh, Tia, Tia Leone liked me. I'm like, how could anyone not like you? <laughs> I mean, you're so real and so beautiful. And, and she said, yeah, but we talked about something that we really didn't agree with about politics. And she said, I got the real feeling that she just turned off of me. So she she led everyone to believe that it was just they didn't like her on the show. <laughs> and a few months after we saw this other woman playing the vice president, Rob, her husband, called me and said, I know that this is something that you should have known about, and I know this is not something I should be telling you this way. But Jan died this morning. I'm like, what? Whoa! She died, and then he explained that he, she had been sick. I had gone to recitals, her son's recitals, with her. We had sat in the audience and cheered him on because he was a music student from the beginning. I don't know how we got off on that, but, you know, right, right. Well, you it's know. like... Well, it, it, well, here's the other thing. You're a cancer survivor. Yes. If anyone... Why wouldn't she tell me? <laughs> right. That probably really hurt you. It hurt so much. It was and bad enough that she was gone without my getting no, to no, say right. goodbye. But, but the one person she knew... That she, she could come knew. to, and at least for support. To even just and, talk about chemo. And, talk and she's about gone. You can't even yell at her. Couldn't even get <laughs> mad. Because I've spent the 
first few weeks saying I'm that I was angry. And how can you be angry at someone you love so much? I was just like, you kidding me? why didn't she even tell me? Why didn't she feel safe to tell me? I never shared any secrets she ever revealed to me. I never right. shared anything with anyone else. I was very, you know, it, it hurts so much. And then Will, the son, I, I talked to him and I said, just it hurt so much that I didn't know when we were together. I was babysitting for you, getting you to do your homework, wrestling you to the ground to get your phone away from you. <laughs> I mean, right. And you never, and I knew that sometimes he got very upset sometimes. And I was like, and if maybe you were upset about something else. And he said, yeah, I know, but we were sworn to secrecy. And when mom said well, right. she swore us to it, we couldn't even tell our best friends. And he said, you were... He said, my dad and I worried most about you because you were the person that should have known. We knew that. And we, it was hard. It was really hard. And those times when Will, the son, acted out, which was very rare, we had so much fun. He taught me to play basketball, mm -hmm. uh, basketball from sitting on the floor. And he said, there were so many times I could have told you that I would have told you. Like, because he was not a... a um, he wasn't. A, he was a lot of fun to be with. We made up songs on the piano. He played his violin. We we did so many things. But when he got moody, I figured he's a kid. He's moody. But there was so much more to it. Wow. It was so sad. Anyhow, I'm glad that we're still friends and everything because I love those guys so much. And it took them a long time to get over that loss. Yeah, I'm sure. At least I was there for them during that time. Once I knew I could be there for them. So, anyhow. Wow. So let's see. Um, I, I we're, we're about done, aren't we? Wow. We How? sure talked a long time. <laughs> How long have we been going? Like an hour and a half. Hour and a half, right? <laughs> More than an hour. <laughs> so, but no. I would love it if we can intersperse yeah, these songs. Yeah, uh, So when I get back to New York on Wednesday, yeah, send me some, I can and I'll, send and I'll, you. And, and I'll put them on. Because now that the album, so is that done, you guys can hear this stuff, and all everything's copyrighted now, so everything's cool. So um, you can put it out. All right, cool. And yeah, and, and where can we find oh, now, your stuff? Yeah, because the still standing music, if you if and, you look for and you're gonna Anita be Hollander still standing, you can you can hear my stuff. But you can see me perform if you're in Cleveland, you would see me perform on November second at Fairmount Temple in um, in Beachwood, Ohio on Saturday, November 2nd at 7 p.m. But if you're in New York or in the area or you're feeling like you're taking a trip to New York, I'm premiering uh, Spectacular Falls, um, the world premiere, on 42nd Street at Theater Row uh, as part of the United Solo Theater Festival. Uh, two of the shows are already sold out. That's uh, September 22nd and... 27th. Although, if you showed up at the theater, you probably, if you waited, you might be able to get in if somebody doesn't show up. But the one show that still has tickets, there's 24 tickets left for <laughs> September 23rd 
a Monday night at 7 p.m. So all of you theater folks who come to New York to see shows, the theater is dark on Monday night. You can yeah, come to generally. my show at 7 p.m. on 42nd Street. But it would be probably good to get your ticket right away. So you want to go to unitedsolo.org. Yeah, United, United Solo. Um, or just Google United Solo Festival, Anita Hollander, Spectacular Falls. Yeah, it's unitedsolo.org. Dot org, right. Yeah. You can find me, put put my name out there, or Spectacular Falls with my name. Anything you Google, uh, you'll you'll find your way to United Solo, to the performance. But I would love it if anyone out there is listening and, and is in the New York area. Yeah. Yay. I'm excited about this show. Well, good. You should be. Oh, and if you're deaf, well, that would be interesting, a podcast. But if you know anyone who's deaf, my sister will oh, be no. doing ASL interpretation for the show, for all those three shows. So I want the deaf community to come out and enjoy the show because we're going to make it really enjoyable for you. And that's true of November 2nd in Cleveland. So if you're in the Cleveland area and you happen to know someone who's deaf, uh, invite them to the show. All right. In that case, we'll... we'll oh, it's all physical ex- it's accessible, all physical. too. It's um, all physical. Well, yeah. All the theaters I just... Fairmont well, Temple the, and have, the, the, uh, the 42nd uh, Street, yeah, all ex- accessible. Elevators. Elevators, uh, easy, ramps. Everything. Easy, easy, easy to get around. And, uh, yeah, the tickets are... Pretty reasonable. So, I hope you think so. There are people who say well, I don't have any for money. for live theater. Yeah, these are reasonable prices for live theater. It's it's good. <laughs> it's not bad. I mean, the New York show is only is, is the less New York than 50 show bucks. forty forty five dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's, and then the Cleveland one's less than that. So that's right. If you if you go to uh, Fairmont Temple dot is that also org. Yes, it is. Yeah, and you can look up my name and don't look up Spectacular Falls. Just look for Anita Hollander at FairmontTemple.org and they will, you'll go, they'll take you to the thing so you can get the tickets for that. All right. Well, you know what? As you know, it's, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Same here, <laughs> mutual. Because. <laughs> It's, it's probably been, I don't know how long ago it's been since we last had a conversation. But yeah. It's been a minute. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Great. But, uh, yeah, great seeing you. Great, great. And thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. All right. Very glad you're doing this. <laughs> <laughs>